Hello, and welcome back to Integral Care's podcast, This is Integral. My name is Mary Pritchett, and I'm the marketing manager at Integral Care. Today, we're looking back at the Central Texas African American Family Support Conference held back in mid-February. The annual event brings together individuals, families, faith leaders, health professionals, and advocates to explore health solutions, foster relationships, reduce stigma, and increase access to care. Fun fact, it's the longest running conference focused on mental health, substance use disorder, intellectual and developmental disabilities, and the African-American community. My name is Kimberly Holiday, and this conference is very special because this is our 20th annual conference. And so this isn't just a conference this time. We're actually almost like a birthday party. This is a legacy party. So I'm super excited. And, and, and to see how many people in the room stood up as this being their first time, that gets me really excited because that means the word is getting out in the, in the very community that we say we want to assist. My name is Felicia Williams Dennis. Uh, I've been coming to the conference. I think I've only missed it twice in the 20 years it's been going on. So I've been coming for years. It's wonderful. It's uh, great that this is uh, continuing. You know, it's uh, much needed and as time goes on it's uh, needed even more because of the life stressors uh, and the changes in our environment and in our society. This year's event celebrated the legacy of the conference with three stellar keynote speakers. Dr. King Davis, an expert in mental health and urban policy research and analysis. Dr. Altha Stewart, a community psychiatrist and the first African-American to hold the position of president of the American Psychiatric Association. And Leandria Johnson, a Grammy-winning singer-songwriter who shared her powerful story of lived experience with substance use and mental health issues. In this episode of This is Integral, we'd like to share some highlights of their presentations and audience reactions to what they heard. We'll start with Dr. Davis. His keynote, entitled Historical Solutions to the Problems Minorities Face, focused on his findings as the principal investigator for a multidisciplinary project examining the archives of the Central Lunatic Asylum for the Colored Insane. Located in Virginia, it was America's first mental institution for Africans in America. And we thought all that we were going to be doing was a rescue task. We were going to go in, copy the records, uh, put them in a way in a folder so people could find them, and then we would quit. But part of what we didn't realize was the issue of the historic racial implications of this hospital, the first hospital in the world for people of color. Between 1868 to 1940, 30,000 people were admitted to this hospital. And we know 14 characteristics about those persons their name, their date of birth, where they're from, uh, whether they were married, where they worked, their education, whether they were in the Army or the Air Force. And more recently, we found another set of files that's given us 18 other characteristics of those individuals as well. So we've been able to do GIS mapping. And one of the questions that we've asked ourselves is, What are the characteristics of people and communities that increases their risk of being hospitalized with a serious mental illness? And I can show you on a map, there are only four or five counties in Virginia. And the blacker the county, the greater the probability that people would be admitted. 
The closer the proximity to the hospital, the greater the chances that people would be admitted. And so for us, this became an extraordinary opportunity for us to be able to understand something about the history of African Americans in mental health. And one of the questions that family members asked was, was Uncle Joe really having a serious mental problem? And so part of what I'll do before I'm through today is that I'm going to compare 1868 to 1940, and then I'm going to compare 2000 to 2019. And then I'm going to answer that question. Was Uncle Harry really in the hospital because he had mental illness, or was he there for some other reason? We found a, a high rate of physical illness, and we had to question whether or not a number of people were admitted to the hospital, not for psychiatric reasons, but for physical reasons, health reasons. Admissions were oftentimes related to gender and age, uh, lots of other things that were there. And a lot of the admissions were related to an arrest by a police officer going before a court. And for the family data, part of what we found was a lot of reliance by family members on churches, on pastors, on prayer, and on delayed help seeking as well. That's that second one that's there. We also found a major strength in these black families of what we call elastic boundaries. Family members who were able to keep a relative at home, in the house, and reasonably functional for 30 years past the onset of symptoms. And part of what we need to be able to understand is what are the strengths of those families to be able to do that? And what are the risks for the families when Uncle Joe or Aunt Mary goes downtown and she gets arrested by the police and is admitted to a hospital on an involuntary uh, permit? So lots of things that are there. We also found a lot of what we call low mental health literacy. Black folks really don't understand much about mental health. We have different kinds of ideas about mental health, different assumptions that we have about mental health, lots of fear about mental illness. Things that we don't simply talk about. We may talk about it with our pastor, but very rarely anybody else. And we're going to talk about what that means as we go along. So part of what we would, let me go back there, would want to do with those things, there was a lot of mistrust of the formal mental health system. A lot of mistrust that made it very difficult to get services. Low voluntary participation. African-American family members who are not part of the mental health association or couldn't be part of the Mental Health Association, not a part of NAMI, or couldn't be part of NAMI. Lots of questions that were raised. Police intervention in crisis, poor communication with the hospital. One of the things that we have in the 800,000 documents are letters from relatives to the hospital director that were never answered. There's a woman there who wrote a letter to the hospital director, and she says, this is the 16th letter that I've written you. My husband's been in the hospital for well over a year. I want to know how he's doing. And the response that went back came only after her employer contacted the hospital to find out that Mr. Jones died a year ago. Hi, my name is Vicki Coffey, and I'm Director of Programs with the Hogg Foundation for Mental Health. And what brings me to this conference is my undying commitment and passion to mental health and wellness in the African-American community. You also happen to be one of the MCs. And I'm one of the MCs also, so that I have a small role. The keynote we've heard so far is Dr. King Davis. Was there anything he said that surprised you? I'd have to be honest, what really surprised me was the similarities between 
the findings of what the challenges were for African Americans in accessing support for mental health and wellness back in the early 1800s to modern day times. There's really not any, if any, very much difference between what the challenges were in terms of access as they are today. What struck me most in the material were the three hypotheses, the three sets of assumptions about blackness and mental illness that started actually in the 1700s. And the first of those was what we call the immunity hypothesis. It's this one. And the immunity hypothesis said that African Americans, whether enslaved or free, were immune from developing mental illness. And that particular hypothesis held from 1700, I'm sorry, from 1700 to 1860. Part of what that meant was that if this population of people in the state were immune from developing illness, they had no need for service. So from 1700 until about 1860, that meant that no African-American person in Virginia could access mental health care of any kind. So where did they go? Some were sold further south. We understand from some of the things that we've seen that some were perhaps killed, some were chained, but they were not able to access services. So the first hypothesis held from 1700 until 1860. And it started to change in 1840. And it started to change in 1840 because that was when the first census of the United States listed individuals in institutions. New York, Virginia, lots of places along the eastern coast. And it listed the numbers of persons in institutions by race. And part of what they concluded for that was that as African people in the South moved north away from slavery, they would lose what? Their minds. That freedom was far too difficult for black people to manage and they would become mentally disabled. So they had to be institutions according to the 1840 census to be able to acquire services if you were black. And part of what the census did was to falsify the data. The data in the 1840 census was crap. It wasn't any valuable stuff in there at all. But it said, in great measure, this is the justification for slavery to be continued. The second of those hypotheses was what I call the freedom hypothesis. From 1860 to 1968, if you, in fact, were black and lived in an urban area, the assumption was your risk of developing a mental illness was greater than other populations. And that's what the 1840 census had said. You can't let black people be free, particularly black men. Why? Because they'll become, what, alcoholic, they'll start to use drugs, they'll become violent, they'll become mentally ill, they'll become dependent, and the white population will have to take care of these dependent African Americans. So from 1840 to 1968, the rate of admissions of African Americans to mental institutions, not just in Virginia, but some other places around the country, was off the charts, greater than any other. But the backside of that for me is that if there were more African Americans in these institutions, 
when the Kennedy bill came along to deinstitutionalize, the most significant number of people coming back to communities would be those same black people. And the risk of homelessness in the black population would increase exponentially. What we found from the work of a number of scholars, uh, Bill, Bill Lawson, Dr. Whaley, Woody Neighbors, and lots of others, is that there may in fact be differences, small differences in rates, but the real differences are in access, diagnosis, misdiagnosis, involuntary, jail, hospitalization, homelessness, delayed help seeking, and deinstitutionalization. And that suggests that in all of these cities and states, there's tremendous work that we have to be able to do. Uh, my name is Carl Hunter. Um, I work for an organization called Recovery People. Um, the gentleman just, he just gave the, um, the, 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 keynote. the keynote speech. Um, and just to find out that information that we had insane asylums that, 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 you know, it's right around the same time of the 13th amendment when, you know, after we got our emancipation, you know, they made jails, right? But the people who didn't go to jail, what you're seeing here is that they put them in insane asylums. It wasn't a conspiracy, but but what you see is 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 some of the stats that were listed that the same things that were happening then are happening now, you know. So the comparison to 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 looking at the state of mental health and and the um, the targeting of black lives um, is is is, is, is it, it shakes me kind of at my core. It doesn't make me mad. It just you know that's the reality of things. But but it makes me want to work harder. And let's give a warm Texas welcome to Dr. Altha Stewart. Our second keynote was Dr. Altha Stewart, who views health equity as an issue of social justice. She calls on all of us to stand up and act as social justice warriors to improve our healthcare system. Because if we don't have good health care, we cannot thrive. She's a warrior for change in her home state of Tennessee. Here's an excerpt of her talk. We have, I think, three major areas when it comes to thinking about uh, mental health, research in mental health, and mental health equity, and kind of that whole social justice framework. There are three areas that I focus on in my work uh, and you're free to, to lift them for your own purposes. Uh, no pride in authorship here. First and foremost, it's about providing the best, highest quality care using principles of engaging the community. If it's not good care, my being out there educating you on stuff that really is not good for you is, is probably not a good thing. In fact, it's a bad thing. Let's just be clear about that. So the first practice uh, principle that I practice is I want to deliver the best quality care in a community setting, non-institutional, non-residential, non-coerced um, setting. Because most of the work that we do with people with mental illness has to do with people going late in the course of the illness at their most serious point, which requires the most um, intense and restricted treatment setting. What happens, as we discussed in the workshop, what happens if we get upstream? 
What happens if we plan as kids are coming into school, if we plan to do screenings to uncover whether there may be some issues that we should deal with? And I recognize that in the black community at least, I don't know about everybody else, in the black community the response I get when I say universal screening for trauma is you just want to label our kids. You just want to tag something on them so it'll follow them for the rest of their life and people will use that to judge them and put them in special ed and all that. Well, I can certainly understand. This is my response. I can certainly understand why you may think that. I can understand even why it may distress you to the point where you would prefer not to have your child scream. But do you also not want to screen them for common childhood illnesses that can kill them? Because what I'm talking about is a common occurrence. Most of the children, and I can only speak from Memphis, when I see a child come into one of our programs, I assume, based on what I know about where they're coming from and why they were referred, I assume I'm dealing with a child who's had some exposure to some severe trauma. The crime rate, the number of drive-by shootings, uh, the missing children, um, and I, I pray that Mr. Foster is found safe and sound, but the number of missing children, the number of children now in child welfare placement, the number of children who are suspended or expelled from school. I have to accept the fact that our children in Memphis are in an environment where Adverse childhood experiences, childhood trauma, severe toxic stress are the order of the day for them. And I can pretend that's not true, but then I'm not doing anything to help them. So I assume that every child has been exposed. What I do not assume is that every child who's been exposed is, is a no-win proposition that nothing can be done to reverse or turn it around or help them overcome whatever the impact is. So providing high quality, I would say trauma-informed, family-driven care, using the community norm for that child and that family as the basis for everything is the first practice. Diversification of the workforce. By that I mean not just race, gender, ethnicity, and all of that, but incorporating people from families, people with lived experience, as equal partners in both the planning, the implementation, the evaluation, and hold on to your seats, the governance. A community advisory board should never be established after the program rolls out. Never. Because by then you've planned what they're advising you on. The community advisory board has to be a part of the initial planning and the people that will serve on it have to be identified early in that planning so that they're at the table helping to do the planning, helping to sketch out what evaluation measures. How will we determine success? What are the outcomes we're expecting? How are we going to sustain this? People have to be at the table in the beginning, not invited for dessert. I mean, I like a good chocolate layer cake as much as everybody else, but I'd much prefer the chicken and the dinner. You know, or maybe the appetizer. Come for the appetizer course and stay for dinner and dessert. 
We, those of us who make these things happen, politicians, legislators, funders, policymakers, uh, and professionals who manage these systems have got to begin thinking in this way. And then the final thing in my own mindset of practices to moving towards equity has to do with reducing the disparities through planning and community engagement as the basis for what we advocate for. I may think if we just had a few more beds for kids that need them, that that would be what I ought to go to, you know, whatever your version of Capitol Hill is, that I ought to go up there and hit every legislator up for, we need more residential beds. The community may think, let's get upstream and find some prevention programs or culturally appropriate intervention, early intervention programs, or community-based uh, programs that are run by community members who are trusted in the community and so can better engage the people who need the service. These are just, you know, these are just my thoughts. Maybe they won't work here. I don't know. Texas and Tennessee may not be as much alike as I thought. Uh, my name is Elliot Nye Black. I am an educator. I've been a teacher in pretty much literally every grade and type of school system. What was your takeaway from Dr. Stewart's keynote? Not necessarily her session this morning, but the keynote. So from her keynote, the... The central message that I took from it was a sense of action and also a sense of informed action. Because there's the recognition of the need, again, yes, it's in this professional space, but even outside, right? We know that there needs to be done more for the community, mental health supports, family reco like, uh, recovery, all of that. And her approach with her presentation and this keynote was here is the information. Here is the data, and also here are the practices, here are the efforts, here are the programs, here are the people who are doing all this. She gave very actionable steps, or at the very least actionable information, and a sense of, I'm doing it. And it wasn't that sense, though, of, I'm doing it, so why can't you doing it? I'm sorry, not, why can't you do it? It's, I'm doing it, let me provide the, the resources to you so that you can do it. You heard Dr. Stewart, yes. uh, her keynote. What, what's the big takeaway for you from her keynote? Uh, be engaged. Be engaged at uh, every level. Um, because just because you don't have some of the credentials that maybe someone else does doesn't mean that you can't uh, assist in the recovery for someone else or the healing for someone else, uh, someone else excuse me, or for just changing the way things are right now. It don't, uh, the status quo doesn't have to stay. Our final keynote, the talented gospel singer Leandria Johnson shared her moving personal experience with substance use disorder. Let's take a listen. Austin, y'all make some noise in here. Or shall I say, are there any survivors in this room tonight? Yeah. All right, now that was only a handful of, of, of survivors that are here tonight. Anybody ever been through anything? Anybody ever been through some hard trials? So, you know, my faith is what got me here today. Um, 
I battled alcoholism for a long time, and um, it was a secret um, to some. Um, but but it was never a secret to me. And I had to learn how to deal with that secret being catapulted into a world that I know I didn't know anything about. And um, I stand before you honest. I stand before you true. And I sit. And, and real, drinking and driving, got a DUI, got pulled over, got locked up, and I had to say to myself, like, is this what you really want? Is this the life that you want? Being in the system, probation, having to pay fees, and having an ankle monitor on your ankle, is that what you really want? No, that's not what I want. But I live my life publicly to show the people that we have ups and downs. We make mistakes, but we can make it. We can strive and we can overcome. So when I, I'm a living testimony. I am a walking billboard to show what God can do. And that's love lifted me. Love lifted me. When nothing else could help. Love lifted me. It was love that lifted me, love lifted me, oh when nothing else could help it was love, lifted me, lifted me. My name is Aja Roland Kennedy and I'm obtaining my master's degree in family and marital counseling. So one of a, a friend of mine let me know about the, the sessions that were happening. And I was like, oh, I have to be there. What did you think of Leandria? What, what's your big takeaway from her testimony? Um, the fact that, you know, it's okay not to be okay. It is okay to talk about it. So um, that was pretty much like the whole goal of letting people know throughout this whole conference. And Leandra just came and testified to that. And then she surprised us with songs, so that was great. That was awesome. Wow, this 20th... 
conference was amazing and it ended on like the highest note possible. I actually feel like not only did we have a family reunion, I feel like we actually went to church and we did. Leandria Johnson took us to church. I was looking forward to hearing her voice because in her voice is her healing. If you missed the 20th annual Central Texas Family Support Conference, then you definitely do not want to miss the 21st because it's only going to get better. So we look forward to seeing you and we hope that you mark your calendars for February the 2nd and the 3rd, 2021. We can't wait to see you.